Amen. Do we serve a perfect God or what? Y'all didn't sound like he was perfect. Y'all sound like he was almost perfect. Amen. Well, what a delight and honor it is to be here gathered around the throne of our king. Psalms 100 verse 4 says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter into his courts with praise. You ought to come in with a praise. You ought to come in thankful. Shouldn't nobody have to push you and prime you. You should be able to think back that he's kept you from some stuff this week. And that should birth the praise right there. Okay, let me take it a step further. You should think back to the goodness of the cross, and that should birth the praise right there. Amen. Why don't you look at somebody and say, it's just good to see you today. Come on, look at somebody else and just tell them it's good to see you today. Well, I'm excited to preach the word of God. Why don't you guys do me a favor, grab those Bibles and those devices and meet me in Habakkuk. We are back in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. If you got physical copies, I'm sure those pages for some of you are stuck together. And we'll be gracious to you today if you could find your way to the Old Testament book. Uh, as you turn there, let me express really quickly my my pastoral gratitude for a church that uh, is serious about the word of God. You know, there, there's an expectancy that you guys come in uh, to this church and you're, you should be expecting that your pastor has spent time in the word of God and has spent time in prayer. And I'm not talking about just spending time uh, exegeting the word, but exegeting my heart and, and making sure that I, I'm standing up before you, not preaching my opinion, Listen to me. The last thing you need is my opinion. What you need is the word of God. And I'm grateful for a church that, that is serious about that. Weak pulpits make weak people. And weak people make weak churches. And weak churches make weak communities. And it's very important that we understand, like, do not take for granted the fact that we, you know, we, we try to be faithful to the word of God by going through books of the Bible. When Paul is standing before the Ephesians elders in Acts chapter 20, I think it's verse 28, he says, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the entire counsel of God. And one of the ways we try to be faithful in going through the entire counsel of God is by getting in a book of the Bible and letting God just speak to us. Sometimes it's, you know, it's sometimes tricks and gimmicks will pack a church, but it won't impact your soul. What we need is the word of God. So I'm excited to be a part of a church. Amen. Whoever clapped, thank God that we are part of a church. That is serious about the word of God. Speaking of the word of God, why don't you guys do me a favor? Uh, look, at, look with me at verse number one. Before I read it, let me just rewind a little bit back because it's been five weeks since we've been off. So I think it's kind of important that I at least give you a recap of the book of Habakkuk so far. Because we're in chapter two. We've gone through the entire chapter one. Verses one through four in chapter one, Habakkuk opens up by really questioning and complaining to God for his supposed blinded eye towards the wickedness of his own people, Judah. And remember, he used words like iniquity and wrong and destruction and violence and strife and contention. And in verse number four of chapter one, he says justice was being perverted, which shows us that injustice is near and dear to God's heart or else Habakkuk wouldn't. Like if you if you're in here, if, if you think that, if you could turn me down just a, a tad bit, if you think that 
uh, Habakkuk talking about injustice really is preaching a social gospel. You're missing the book of Habakkuk. But God is putting on the, the, the uh, prophet's heart to talk about injustice. That shows us that that is near and dear to God's heart. So the first week he got, we got together, verses 1 through 4, opened up with questions and complaints. Second week we got together in verses 5 through 11, and we saw that God abruptly interrupts Habakkuk and says, listen, I'm not turning a blinded eye to the issues that are in Judah. I'm actually going to deal with it, but I'm going to deal with it in an unconventional way. I'm going to send the Babylonians, which we've showed through the text that the Babylonians are a more wicked nation than Judah. Has God ever done anything that was just confusing? Like, I know y'all are spiritual. Y'all deep. You could turn me down just a little bit. I know y'all are spiritual and y'all are deep, but the reality is God does some stuff that'll make you scratch your head. Like, did he mean to do that? Is he sure? Like, is anybody in here with me? Like, you've ever been there where you were just confused and you questioned God? Well, that's what Habakkuk just did. And God said, well, I'm going going, going to deal with Judah, but I'm going to deal with him how I want to deal with him. Well, last time we got together in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 1, Habakkuk came back with a second set of complaints and a second set of questions, which shows us that God is not aggravated with your persistency when you come to him over and over and over again, especially with the things that you're confused about. God isn't like upset with you for coming back to him. And this is why it's good that I'm not God, because if I'm God, the first four verses, I'm going to divinely smack the prophet. But by the time you question me two times, you're going to cease to exist because it's not like God needs Habakkuk. Can he not raise up another prophet? But he he, he, this shows us that he doesn't just care about the mission. He cares about the missionary. He doesn't just care about the work. He cares about the prophet. So what we get to see and the last time we got together was that Habakkuk began the text or begin the chapter with questions and complaints. He ends the chapter with questions and complaints. But here's what I love about our passage this morning. No longer do you see any questions. No longer. In fact, the rest of the book are no. There are no more complaints in the book. We've gotten all of our questions out. We've gotten all of our complaints out in chapter one. And now we get to see two things, the posture of Habakkuk. And we get to see God's response to Habakkuk's second set of complaints. Why don't you look with me at verse one in chapter two? says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, circle these three words, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, look at your neighbor and say, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. This is the most famous verse in all of Habakkuk is right here. The righteous shall live by faith. I want to preach this afternoon from the topic entitled Patiently Waiting. Let us look to the Lord. Father, today we come to you really impatient. Some of us come to you ready to give up, ready to throw our hands up, because we do think that 
because you have delayed your response, we do feel like you forgot about us. Father, would you get at us today through your text? Would you bridge the gap between my words and your will? Would you help me to only say the things that are according to your will? Nothing more, nothing less. Father, I pray that Jesus Christ would be the hero of our text. May we walk out of here and be more in love with Jesus because we heard the gospel this morning. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. It is in Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. Amen. Patiently waiting. Have you ever heard the term or the idiom, hurry up and wait? That that, um, term derived from uh, the military in the 1940s, the U.S. military. You know, many U.S. veterans will tell you that this idea of hurry up and wait is synonymous with military culture. This is a humorous way of saying you rush through point A to get to point B to have to wait. Has anybody ever been there where you were rushing, 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 and you get to the next thing and it just slows down? Or you were working on a project and working on a project and you were rushing and you complete the project and then you have to get to the next phase and you're just waiting. Well, what I found out about waiting, and particularly this cliche, is that we love cliches like this. Hurry up and wait and some things are worth waiting for. We love cliches like good things only come to those who wait. And even though we love the cliches of waiting, reality is we hate waiting. You wait in line and you are aggravated. You wait in the doctor's office in the waiting room and you are aggravated. You wait to be seen by the dentist and you are aggravated. We wait in traffic and you let some words fly out of your mouth that you would never say if you weren't in traffic. Because we hate waiting. Can I prove it to you that you hate waiting? And that was only 10 seconds. Some of y'all were like, did he lose his place? What, what is something wrong with him? The reality is that irritable feeling you, feel, you felt was because you hate waiting. And culture doesn't help us with this idea of patience. Culture doesn't help us with this idea of waiting. In fact, those devices in your hands do not help you to wait. You, I mean, you, you literally, while I'm preaching, can book a flight to the Cayman Islands... <laughs> Get on the flight after service, be in the Cayman Islands on vacation before the end of the day. We do not like waiting. We are impatient people. We are impulsive people. And the idea of patience kills us. It makes us feel unproductive. So therefore, we don't like waiting. But here's what I love about Habakkuk. Habakkuk opens up chapter two, waiting. And he is waiting For a specific reason, he is waiting to hear the voice of the Lord. Look back with me at verse number one. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And I will what and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let me lift up the first part of that verse. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower. A watchman typically would get on the highest part of the wall. And he would watch for impeding danger from enemies that were approaching. That's what a watchman usually did. Now, here's what the text does not tell us. The text doesn't tell us where Habakkuk's watch post was. But even though we don't know the exact location of his watch post, here's what we do get let in on on the text. We know that the prophet got into his watch post 
so that he could withdraw from normal society to get along with God. And some of you, that is what you need to do. With all the chaos around you, with all of the mayhem around you, it is hard to hear the voice of God when you're surrounded by chaos. So what you need to do is get along with God. What you need is a spiritual watchtower that you climb into in the midst of the concrete jungle and you get time alone with God. Because that is exactly what Habakkuk is doing. Because in the midst of chaos, we don't get a good perspective on what God is doing. But when you're able to get above the chaos and get above the mess, then it is there that you get to see the clarity of God's voice. And you get a different perspective of the exact same situation. My oldest son and I had a flight down to North Carolina a couple months ago, and we were already late for the flight. The, it, was, it was bad weather, and so we, we moved our flight up, and we ended up like just jumping out of the bed, showering, brushing our teeth, and jumping into Uber, and we were already late, and I was praying. I was going, Lord, let the Uber dri driver have skills behind the wheel. Well, unfortunately, that prayer fell flat because he was not nice behind the wheel at all. But I, not only did he not know how to get us to the airport in a quick, timely manner, when we got on the Jackie Robinson, we were in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. It was horns beeping around us. It was pouring down, raining. I mean, we passed at least two to three accidents. People were yelling out the window. And it, I can describe the ride to LaGuardia Airport as chaos. It just was. We finally get to the airport, and of course, I missed the flight. Get to the airport, and American Airlines puts us on a flight that was an hour later. Now, when they put us on the flight that was an hour later, I sat on the flight, and I sat at the window, and I typically don't do this. I usually close my eyes. I don't like the feeling of ascending and dis descending on a plane, so I usually close my eyes. But something said, look out the window. And I looked out the window, and the very chaos that I was a part of, when I looked down, to my surprise, I saw order, and I saw design. And I saw purpose. In other words, nobody was riding on the Jackie Robinson the wrong way. Nobody was on the acceleration lane stopping. Nobody was running lights. Everything was flowing. Traffic would look like it was flowing. But what did not change was the chaos. I guarantee you it was still chaos on the ground. But what changed was my perspective of the chaos. And some of you in this room, you're still on the Jackie Robinson right now. But what you need is not for God to change the chaos. You need to get above it. You need to get in your watchtower. So Habakkuk in our text this morning gets above the chaos because in chapter one, he was on the Jackie Robinson. But in chapter two, he says, nah, I can't deal with this. I got to get in my watchtower. And when he gets in the watchtower and he looks down, there's a different perspective that he gets. And that's what you and I need because I'm not, man, I'm not naive. Some of you walked in, the, in this room and you are smack dead in the midst, midst of chaos. And the chaos around you normally comes from family. I need somebody to say amen right there. It normally comes from your best friend. Normally comes from that relationship. Maybe it's that job that you're on. That is a chaotic atmosphere. But you need to, and sometimes the watchtower you get in isn't a physical location. Sometimes it's a spiritual one. In the midst of chaos, you can just slip away and get right into your watchtower. So what we see in the text is he's doing that. Now, now don't hear me say isolate yourself. I think you guys know me well enough, know that I, I push community here. I do not think that the Christian life is meant to be lived in isolation. It's dangerous. 
Christian life is meant to be lived in community. But I will say that there needs to be balance. You ever had that friend that they like, all they want to do is spend time with you? Girl, can you come over today? Can, can we go to the movies? Can we go out to eat? There's a new coffee shop. Let's go check out the coffee shop. Like everything is always community, community. When you're always seeking after community, really it's not community that you want. You're escaping the moment of being alone with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about his. My, one of my favorite thinkers, his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called Life Together. And in the book Life Together, it's a book on community. That's why it's called Life Together. He has a chapter called Day Alone. I'm like, that's an anticlimactic chapter to put in a book on community. You're going to put in a book on a community that you need to be alone. Really what he was pushing was balance. If you always are around people and you never spend time with the Lord, you're out of order. You're off balance. But you need time with the community because when you spent time alone with God, you can then come and strengthen the community. You cannot strengthen the community while you're on E. There are moments where you need to just separate yourself. You need what I would call a dog. D-A-W-G. A day alone with God. That's what you need. You don't need more counsel. You don't need more therapy. You need to spend time with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the greatest counselor. And that's what you need to do. A few weeks ago, I was feeling this sense of chaos around me. I was like, man, I, I need to disconnect for a minute. So my, my wife and I booked an impromptu trip to Colorado. Some of you have never been to Colorado. When I tell you, we flew into Denver. We stayed in Denver. And every morning we got up. We got in the car and we drove two hours into the mountains of Colorado and we wandered in places where there was no Wi-Fi. Like there just wasn't. And that was good for us. There was, you know, this is the first trip. This, this Colorado trip was the first trip in 10 years, a decade, that I intentionally left my laptop home. I never traveled without my laptop, but I left it right home, right next to my bed. And the reason I did that is because I needed a dog. I needed a day alone with God. I need to spend time, and that's what you need. You think you need more counseling. You think you need discipleship. And I'm not, don't hear me say you don't need counseling. Don't hear me say you don't need discipleship. But you don't need that if you've never spent time alone with God. You need time with Jesus because he really is the greatest counselor. Some of you need to turn off your Instagram. Some of you need a month where you disconnect from Facebook. Some of you need to disconnect from Snapchat. You, let me tell you how you know you need to disconnect. This is when you know you need to disconnect. If the first thing you do when you wake up is grab your phone and see your Twitter feed, you need to disconnect. Because you need to be on Jesus' social media. You need to be spending time with the Lord. If all you do is check your followers, you need to question, am I really following the Lord? Do I, ha like, do I really have this relationship tight? Reality is, reality is some of us have spent more time looking at our Facebook friends than we have with the Lord. Let me, let me, let me confess my sins because I don't want to preach like I don't deal with this. There have been times where I've gotten in the pulpit and I realized that week I spent more time with people than I did God. I'm just telling you. And it's dangerous because that is where sin typically creeps in. Creeps in. I'm telling you. It doesn't just happen out of, no, it's spent. You did not spend time with the Lord. And after a while, you were depleted. And after you were depleted, you made bad decisions. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to get alone. 
Now, his isolation isn't because he's an introvert. His isolation isn't because he's depressed. He's getting alone for a specific reason. Now, I don't have to make this, this up because the text tells us why he is getting alone. Getting alone. Look at verse 1. And I would take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower. Here's the first reason. And look to see what he will say to me. The reason he gets alone is because he wants clarity on the voice of God. And it is hard to get clarity when you are in the midst of chaos. It is hard to, because what will happen is you will start to lean on the voice of your friend instead of the voice of God. Or worse, you'll start to lean on your own intuition. You'll start to lean on your own wisdom. You start to lean on your own knowledge instead of hearing the voice of God. But what we need to do is get away so that we can hear the voice of God more clearly. I, I, I used to uh, uh, do this thing, man, where all, like, all the time in the midst of chaos, I would ask friends, man, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And after a while, I realized I was asking people what they thought more than I was going to the word of God to see what God thought. And that's me. Like, can we be real? That's many of you in this room. Many of you haven't read your Bible all week to see what God would say. How do you hear the voice of God if we don't read our Bibles? You think he just shows up at your kitchen table and is like, oh, this is what I want you to do. It's not how it works. you got to get in your Bible. So the Bible tells us that he gets alone with God. Why does he get alone? Because he needs clarity on God's voice. During 9-11, right after 9-11, this specially trained crew was brought in with this specially trained equipment to hear voices underneath the rubble. So they were listening for the people, because remember, people were trapped underneath of all of the rubble, and, and these guys come in with these machines. And they're, Now, here's what's crazy. The machines were so sensitive that they could hear a heartbeat a mile away. Now, they're working and they're listening, but they're not doing it in like an isolated area. It's chaos all around them. F-16s are flying over them. Sirens are probably going off. People are probably screaming. Fires are breaking out. Beams are probably still falling. But in the midst of all the chaos, they had one purpose to hear that voice. And some of you, that is where you are. In the midst of all of the chaos, you need to make a declaration to God. God, I just want to hear your voice. I don't want to be confused with everything around me. I need to hear from God. And so Habakkuk says, listen, I'm going to get away. I'm going to isolate myself because I need to hear from God. That's the first reason. Second reason he isolates himself is found in the text as well. I would take my stand at the watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me. Here it is. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. The second reason he isolated himself was not only to hear the voice of God, but to check his response to the voice of God. He must have realized I was flipping off at the mouth in chapter one. So let me chill, get in this watchtower, hear God's voice and see, check my response to God's voice. Don't like see the thing about us are, is we normally want to hear God's voice until he tells you to do something that you don't want to do. That's that's when we like, nah, I'm good with you as long as it's what I want to do. But the moment you tell me to do something that is anti what I want to do, then I'm pushing back. But the prophet says, I need to get alone because I need to check my response. What is your reaction to God's voice? Do you run in fear? Do you doubt? Do, do you ask friends over asking God? What do you do when God tells you not something you want to do, 
but something you should do even though you don't want to do it. What do you do then? Well, Habakkuk gets up in his watchtower and he says, I'm getting here for two reasons, because I need to hear clarity on the voice of God and I need to check how I'm going to respond. Don't sit in this room like you're always like, yes and amen. There are times you like, God, I know you don't know what you're doing. Can we be real? But the, the reality is Habakkuk is like, nah, I need to get away with God because I need to hear him speak. Now, here's what's interesting. He will speak in verse 2. But in verse 2, when he speaks, God gives him vision, which shows us vision isn't birthed out of strategic planning. Vision isn't birthed because you got a degree in business marketing. You think that business is going to be popping because you got the degree? No, vision is birthed out of spending time with God. He gets clarity on what to do and what to say because he spent time with the Lord. Well, what does God say in verse 2? Here it is. And the Lord answered me. What does he say? Write the vision. I need you to help me preach and look at somebody and say, write it down. It's not enough just to hear God's voice. you got to record God's voice. So I'm going to put it this way. What I'm holding here, these aren't journals. I don't journal. This is vision books. That's what I call them. And four out of five of them are filled up. And really, you know, I went down in my basement this morning, I had a little office, a little desk, and I went down to the desk and I pulled these out and I started to read back. And I realized I started writing in these in 2012 and I wrote down everything I thought that the Lord was saying. And some of it is you sitting in this room is a result of writing it in this book. This church being planted here in Bed-Stuy is a result of writing it in this book in 2012. And some of you need to get on the train, go down to, uh, to, to Target, and get you a vision book. And everything the Lord is saying, you need to record it. Because God doesn't just say, I'm going to speak and you listen. He says, write it down. But here's what I, I'm not trying to be a deep person here, but I'm, I'm trying to tell you. This morning when I grabbed these books, when I grabbed this one, I still haven't feel you still in the plastic. When I grabbed this one, it was almost like the Lord was speaking and saying, I still got more vision. You need more books. Because you need to keep writing. And one day my hope and prayer is to give these to my kids. I want them to look and see what daddy was wrestling with. And what daddy was trying to see, trying to hear from the Lord. And that's what you need. You need to write it down. Some of y'all is too much in your heart. It's too much in your mind. You'll forget it. But you need to take that thing. Because what he's doing is he's saying write the vision for memorization. And a reflective tool. This morning when I look back, I was rejoicing. Hear me, not over the things that God only answered, but the things that he didn't answer. So watch what you need to do. You need to write the vision. Write it clear. Write that business plan down. Whatever God, whatever ministry he's calling you to do, write it down. You need to do that because he says write the vision. Now, when I was reading this, I realized there were some things that he hasn't answered yet. And I'm still praying for those things. I'm praying for us to open up a pregnancy crisis center written in these books. Why am I praying for that? Because in the 11216 zip code, 44% is the abortion rate. So in my mind, I'm like, Lord, 2012, we don't have the financial means now, but I wrote it in the book because I thought God said it. We need a homeless shelter, an epiphany homeless shelter. There's 55,000 people that are homeless in New York. If we could make a small dent in that, Praying that we would become internally, financially supported. 
not because we want to just pay all our bills, but because we want to pay all our bills and we want to. What would it be like if we sent some of you on a mission trip for a month and you didn't pay a dime? We sent you somewhere to do missionary work. Or what would it look like for us to have? Well, that's the other thing written in this book. We want missional housing. We want to own property, houses, so that if you get in a jam, what would it look like for you to get in a jam, come to the church, and we say, we'll give you three to six months of free rent. Stay here until you get back on your feet. That's what I'm praying for. Gathering on Sunday mornings ain't it. But we gather to scatter and to be salt and light in the earth. And so my, my hope and prayer as I'm talking about the things that God, when I was reading that this morning, I got encouraged. And so that's what, it, that's what it means to write the vision. It's a reflective tool, but it's not only a reflective tool. The text shows us that it also is meant to be obeyed. How do I know that? Look back at the text, verse 2. Verse 2, he says this, And the Lord said to me, write the vision, make it plain. Here's how it's meant to be obeyed. So he may run who reads it. Now, many commentators have, have questioned and got this text confused because many commentators have suggested that this means the people that are running past because these tablets would have been put in public places. So many commentators will say that this means that the person's running past and reading it may read, but that's not the original language. The original language, the Old Testament was written in a language called Hebrew. And in the original language, this is how it reads. So whoever reads it may run with it. So in other words, the Old Testament focuses on the obedience of the reader. It is not just enough to hear God's voice. It is not just enough to write it down. But you got to obey. And most of us in here, we struggle with obedience, not because we don't want to obey, just because you think you're smarter than God. That's why you don't obey. You think you know more than God. But the text tells us this morning to write it down so that whoever reads it may run with it. When I think about what wisdom and folly is, and I look at the text, and when I look at Matthew 7, Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to give us a distinction between a wise builder and a foolish builder. Now, what distinguishes the wise builder and the foolish builder is not the fact that they heard Jesus' words, because the reality is even the fool in the text heard Jesus' words. What separated the two was the one that heard it and obeyed it. And so some of you in this room, you think you're doing something because you're sitting here taking notes. You got to obey what God says. Millennials, I'm, I'm just telling you, we are y'all are full of this disobedience because they, can't nobody tell me what to do. Can't nobody judge me. But the reality is you need to write it. You need to hear it. You need to write it and you need to obey it. So he says, listen, write the vision, make it plain so that he who reads it, they say so that he may run who reads it. Now, there are still more patience needed in the text. Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, here it is, wait for it. It will surely come. Now, this text helped me this week. And the reason this text helped me, let, let me first set this up by saying, Psalms 139 says that I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Now, as a black man, it's, when I read this text, it gave me hope. It, let me just tell you why. Here's why it gave me hope. Because Habakkuk opened up talking about perverted justice. He talked about justice not going forth in chapter 1. 
He gets to chapter two and God is like, wait for it. In other words, God is like, I'm going to balance the scales of injustice. And so when I look around the culture and I look around at the church is not prophetically speaking into injustice, which, by the way, is not a social gospel. It is the gospel. And I look at us not like pushing against injustice. When I read texts like this, it gives me hope because it says wait for it. But it only doesn't it doesn't just say wait for it. It says it will surely come. So justice will happen. It's hard for me to see two black men sitting in Rittenhouse coffee shop in Philadelphia and get arrested. Do you know how many times I sit and wait for a friend in a coffee shop? So when I read texts like this, it gives me hope. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. And why am I waiting for it? Because it will surely come. Let's get to this last verse because this last verse is the, this is the linchpin of the whole book. Not just the chapter, the entire book. Look at verse 4. It says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Notice Habakkuk does not say the righteous lives by doubt. It does not say the righteous lives by works. It does not say the righteous lives by his own merit. It says the righteous live by faith. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in school, in, in seminary, they teach you that the New Testament is the best explainer of the Old Testament. So when I read the context of Habakkuk, it can be confusing what he's talking about. But if you bump it up against the New Testament, you get clarity. In other words, three New Testament writers wrote about this verse. They quoted this verse. They read Habakkuk and they applied it to their time. Here's what they said. In, in, uh, he, he, it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And when he quotes it there, he connects it to the gospel. How do I know that? Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all that believe, first the Jew, then the Greek. Then verse 17 goes on, and he says, this is what Paul says, for, it is, for, it, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, he's quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. He connected salvation to this verse. He goes on and does it again in Galatians 3, 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God by works of the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so the New Testament writers look back at this verse and came to the conclusion that the just living by faith is you not living by your works. For some reason, like some of you in here think you need to earn God's love. You think that you need to work for God's love. And even though Jesus said it is finished, you're still saying it's not finished. And you're not audibly saying that, but your life is showing that. And some of you have trusted in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But your actions are all law, are all works. But the text tells us the just lives by faith. The just doesn't live by his works. The just doesn't live by his own merit. There's a baking company. Um, this, this baking company in the late 80s, this is before we had instant pancakes and, you know, grandma don't know nothing about no instant pancakes. But this is before we had instant anything. And this baking company decided they were going to come out with an instant cake. In fact, the only ingredient was to add water and to put it in the oven. But people, somebody said suspect, <laughs> but people... But people in the market, the consumers did not buy it because they were skeptical. They said, nah, that's just too easy. We got to add something to this. And so 
The developers went back to the business and said, you know what? We got to do a study on why people aren't buying this. They found out that people were saying just adding water was too easy. They needed more ingredients. And so what the company did, I kid you, true story. The company then goes back and they says, let's add another ingredient then. And so they added water and an egg and sales skyrocketed. Why did sales skyrocket? Because people always feel like they need to add. And when it comes to the recipe of salvation, you don't add anything to it. You don't need another egg. You don't need more water. We need Jesus and Jesus alone. Some of us are, are, are in that place. You, you're in here and you come every week, but you're in here going, man, I got to earn it. Man, I, he won't love me unless I perform more. Listen, you behaving is not to be saved. You behaving is a result that you already are saved. And so you obey and you do good things not to earn God's love, but because you got God's love. Some of you in here, you are not on that page right now. Some of you just aren't. You're still trying to work and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You cannot earn. You know, you trying to earn God's love is like being way out in the ocean. And, and it's you and somebody else that's a good swimmer. And the other person's a better swimmer than you. And they swim, you know, 50 feet. And you get in and you swim 25 feet. But neither one of you make it to the shore. That is what earning your salvation is like. Doesn't matter how spiritual people look. The only way to get to the shore is if Jesus picks you up and brings you to the shore. And that is what we get in Jesus. We get his full righteousness, not just his love, but we get his righteousness. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Even in the midst of chaos, Lord, the believer has peace. And we have peace that passes all understanding. People don't understand us. And the reason they don't understand us is because we serve the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Thank you for salvation. Salvation doesn't, doesn't revolve around coming down to the altar. But Father, I thank you for the boldness of this brother. Father, continue to work in his life. May people see a drastic change in him because he's committed to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen.